You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. Eric here with Two Sides of Phi, just checking in to let you know this is part two in a two-part asset allocation series. If you missed part one, be sure to check that one out first. In part two, we pick up where we left off, talking about the breakdown of our stock portfolios. Inside of this umbrella of your portfolio, you have stocks and bonds and your alternatives, but subdivided, the stocks are subdivided between international and a, a bunch of other things, right? What, what's that mix look like? Yeah. Yeah. So at a, at a high level, let's just look at the, the equities right now, because I think that's a very straightforward analysis. Yeah. It's about 75% U.S. market and 25% international. Oh, okay. And in there, of hmm. course, there's a mix of, you know, large cap versus, you know, some you know, small position, small cap. But 75-25 is my U.S. versus international. And for some reason, this is one of the most controversial topics out there, specifically among Bogleheads. If you look at them, I think zero to 30 percent international tends to be the range. There's an awful lot of people that hold zero percent international. For right. me, I like having an international position from a diversity standpoint and having a diverse international position. It's not just weighted towards Europe, for example. I, I, there is emerging market coverage in there. There's healthy Asia coverage in there. For me, just mathematically, and, and maybe some of this is just from my business business experience, right. there's tremendous growth in, in uh, emerging markets and in many large Asia economies. And so investments in there just make good sense to me. Yes, they're gonna be more volatile, but in, in the interest of capturing that volatility, I think it's important to diversify geographically, despite the the strength of the U.S. market over many decades at this point, so that's why I I feel very comfortable with seventy five twenty five. How do you think about it? It's uh, I mean I like that as an opportunity play. I I just I do it simply. I just have an international you know uh, stock market index fund. That's all mine is. I don't have any particular crazy bent or anything like that. It's like ten percent of the stock portfolio right now, um, and it. It's not a bad idea, I think, if you're thinking about this to hold that, I think, in a taxable account because you can get foreign tax credit for any of those distributions. So, again, don't quote me for tax advice, uh, but it's something to yeah. look in and, and research. I was going to say that a little differently. I was going to say, especially if you're going your own way, when it comes to asset location and the potential tax ramifications, that can be a very inexpensive check-in with an accountant. Yep. Even if you're not someone that uses an accountant for your annual tax filings, you could easily get a couple hours of consulting time with somebody to just look over your strategy and understand what the ramifications might be of decision A versus decision B. And that's probably a pretty wise thing to do. Totally. Yeah. We, we haven't talked at all about um, Roth assets. Do you think about that when we're talking about locations? You have you know, your taxable brokerage account, you've got your retirement accounts. Do you have a Roth account or no? I do. And it's something that, that came about later. Obviously, when you and I first started investing due to our age, Didn't exist, Roths yeah. weren't available at the beginning of that. They came around later. I did start contributing to one. It's not an enormous part of my portfolio, but it is something that from a, as a tax as it makes starts to make sense uh, coming you know into retirement now i will do regular roth conversions yeah and what just like i'll continue contributing to an hsa 
right? Because yeah. filling in those buckets of tax advantage accounts. And you probably just want equities in that Roth account, right? I mean, we're not talking about putting bonds yeah. in there, right? No, typically these are your right higher returning you know, from a normally from a tax standpoint, things that would be of concern, those are typically what people are putting in their Roths. Yeah. And as we think about, you know, one of the hesitations that I started having here, Jay, is this um, reallocating my portfolio. I started thinking about, well, really having equities in my taxable brokerage account makes a heck of a lot of sense um, because I can, you know, those are treated very favorably from a tax standpoint here in the U.S., you know, of your long-term capital gains rates are much lower than your marginal tax rates. Um, so when you're talking about tapping retirement assets, that that is counted as income, right? And that depends on the tax on that depends on what your marginal tax rate is, as opposed to selling right. assets in a taxable brokerage account. It's just the, you know, appreciated value that you're going to be paying the long-term capital gains tax rates on, which is, you know, depending on how you do it, could be as little as 0%, right? <laughs> yeah. Zero, fifteen, twenty 15, 20, depends. And I know there's new tax legislation that's potentially going to be raising those and changing the thresholds, but it, that's yet another thing to think about. So if you want to, like, I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to put municipal bonds in my taxable account, but then I'm going to crowd out the space that I have for these equities, which I really want in my taxable account. <laughs> But it's like this really strange problem to solve. I don't feel, I feel like every avenue I go down, I don't have a, a good solid answer. Well, and honestly, and, and this is, you know, people viewing this may disagree with me, but personally, the implications of tax and not having to plan all that out myself historically yeah. has been one of the things where I've appreciated help the most right. from my financial advisors. That doesn't mean that will always be the answer. Now, you know, once I'm very, you know, much more familiar and comfortable with the operating <laughs> of all of that on my own. But today, as I sit here, as much as I love the idea of taking that assets under management fee off the books, uh, right now, I feel I get a lot of value for it. And that answer, I hope and believe will change as I get more and more comfortable with this. But hey, for me, that's where it is. But Eric, we've just made the point for the Bogleheads right there. <laughs> By having a simple portfolio, yes. <laughs> you don't have to think nearly as much, if at all, well, about some of those more complex things we're talking about. And so there's an argument that can be made for a lazy portfolio in terms of how hands-off you can be. And if that's what's important to you, that's what I would recommend. I want something that works, that's going to work for the long term. And I th think just peering over your shoulder at your uh, financial advisors, I would be way more confident in your plan than mine personally, especially after I got all that feedback <laughs> on my portfolio saying, oh, you're completely insane. You moron. What are you doing? <laughs> Who's driving the bus? <laughs> I mean, I mean, to be fair, I, I, uh, you shared a bunch of that feedback with me. I, I, I don't think anyone quite called you a moron, but I think some of the more conservative people uh, suggested you might want to uh, balance your expectations about your your tent, your, the timeline that's going to take you to retire and your confidence in doing that. Well, here's the thing that I came if you don't make changes. The the real thing that the real revelation that I came away with from that was. Uh, you know, I basically described what my portfolio was, where I was at, where I was headed. And uh, someone pointed out that, you know, your contributions alone are going to get you to your the finish line. So you've just created yep. a portfolio that is full of risk when you don't need it. So let's say the stock market between now and your FI date takes a tank. 
you've just changed your phi date. You just had to change your phi date in no matter what you're contributing to this thing. If you dial back the risk that you're assuming right now, then you can get there with your contributions alone. And that was enough yes. of a push for me to say, oh yeah, that makes complete sense. Why wasn't I looking at it that way? And in the meantime, it helped me become more educated on the value of having fixed income as an option to move into. Yes. You know, If we got into a, a period of a downturn when we just retired, you need those options. You definitely do. And it does make you think because let's say my business continues to earn money into retirement. Well, that's as yep. good a fixed income asset as any, isn't it? I think so. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, another way to state that would be the more other income that continues to be generated, the lower your withdrawal weight, yeah. <laughs> withdrawal rate will be from your, the rest of your portfolio. Right. So whether that's a pension or side hustles or passive income, as it is in your case, all those things reduce the burden on your portfolio from having to deliver to pay for your expenses. We rightfully spend a lot of time, you and I, talking about sequence of returns risk, right? right? The, the potential downfall that can come from bad market conditions in your first few years of retirement. But what you were just talking about there was retirement date, date risk. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, like I have kind of a hard and fast date in my mind. And, you know, the other comments that came as a result of posting a portfolio is like, well, why be so hard and fast? I mean, you know, because if, if the market, if you keep this allocation and the market takes a tank, you're absolutely going to be, you know, extending your, your date to retirement. And that is, that is a real risk and not one I'm, willing to take. Um, I would say for, for people who are in this situation where you're looking at your portfolio and you're saying, is, am I doing the right thing? I do think there are places that you can post your portfolio and get some critical feedback. And whether you act on that advice or not, uh, it doesn't really matter. But what it did for me was just opened my eyes to the things that I was kind of blind to, even though, you know, I got my good friend telling me, Hey man, this is a bad idea. You should really, you should really change your asset allocation here. You know, and, and, and my wife whispering in my ear, the same thing. I'm like, ah, it's fine. It's fine. It was like, this is a fire portfolio. We got to, that's a strong engine we need to carry us through retirement. But getting those contrarian opinions was super valuable and, and a real kind of gut check to just say, what you think you're different than everybody else? No, like given your stated goals, you're not, this is a bad idea. And so I actually really loved it. You know, I was kind of nervous when I posted, it. I was like, Oh God, what, what's gonna, What's this going to be? And it was, it ended up being really helpful, you know, and combined yeah. with your input and advice and feedback, it set me on kind of a new path. You know, this idea of a course correction is really great. Now it's the mechanics of it that <laughs> drive me nuts currently. Yes. <laughs> How, what percentage of you know, your, your, um, taxable has, uh, bonds in it. Are you willing to say? Yeah, I think my municipal bond hand fund is something like 5% of my taxable account. Okay. Wow. So yep. But you know, any one of these numbers in a vacuum are only so useful, right? I think that's the challenge. And that's why there's not one size fits all. Right. Um, but if it's 5%, it's how then the whole portfolio plays together. I know. I know. But right. But if I have an outsized taxable account versus somebody else where they're much closer in size, the percentage is going to be different. That's a good point. Good. But I guess that's, that's, I kind of, I'm used to giving that answer because I get so many comments and questions on finer points of numbers. And if there's such an interplay with the rest of your portfolio, not to mention lifestyle and other 
aspects that you need to consider. I think that's a big part of the challenge is how in how it can be very tough. And we hear things called rules a lot in the fire community, <laughs> yeah. whereas they're more aptly called rules of thumb. And even rules of thumb are pretty loose sometimes. Um, as much as we would like to, by human nature, simplify everything uh, to sort of J.L. Collins level. That's where uh, I'm and at. That's man. not a knock on yeah. people path to wealth at all. I think it's great and it's a tremendous place for people to start in their investing journey. If I take that 70-30 allocation and I say, oh, I'm going to apply that to my taxable account, my tax deferred account, and I'm just going to you know, apply that as a rule, right? Because Rick Ferry yep. says so. I'm like, okay, that's my starting point. And then actually what Laura and I were doing last night, we were looking at that. And like you said, it, it does matter what the size of your account is. And so maybe the rule that we could return to is what we talked, started talking about early on. And that is how long do you need this to last for? Um, because 5% yes. of a very large number could last you for three to four years, which is what you're looking for in, you know, every one of these funds, each one of these pieces of your asset allocation, they have a job in the portfolio. And they do. what I'm realizing is the job of the, the fixed income pieces are to not only smooth out the ride. Cause I can, you know, um, I can hang on during a rocky ride, but it's, it's to help get me through so that I'm not destroying the portfolio when it's really bumpy. And that's the, that was one of the yes. revelations that I had. So we, we said, okay, 70, 30, if 30% of this terminal value of our projected, you know, taxable brokerage account is this amount of money, how long would that last us for based on our yearly expenditures so yes. that we don't have to reduce our, our lifestyle? Cause Laura's like, well, I don't want to just like <laughs> go camping for vacations for four years. That's not going to happen. Let's design this to work for us. Yes, absolutely. Let me, I'd like to frame what you just said in a different way and see how you react to it. So the first thing you talked about is sort of like your mental ability to weather severe downturns yes. and not do crazy things like just sell it all and go to cash. Got it. I can I do absolutely that. Absolutely. <laughs> Very otherwise rational people do. I don't fear that you will do that. You right. have a very high risk tolerance. But now my favorite topic to bring up is risk capacity. Let's talk about a protracted downturn that's two or three years and it's slow to return. That is where you have to be considering how can my portfolio get me out the other side of that so that I do not have to touch things I do, don't want to touch, right? Leave my um, stocks alone and have enough ballast in my portfolio to sell. So we have cash and we have our fixed income and that's what we're going to have to rely on. So if you don't have enough of those for that downturn, right? And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking yeah. about the good years. No, I get it. We're talking about the bad years. And Honestly, I have talked to a lot of younger folks about this, some of whom are clearly incredibly intelligent. <laughs> and they tell me like, you know, I'm within X years of a very early fire day, right? Much earlier than we're talking about, maybe early 30s, for example. Wow. And they're like, I'm still 100% stock. Well, what happens if now we have a big downturn and it's several years in? Are you willing to move your retirement date? And when the answer is yes, okay, well, that's a little different. If the right. answer is no, and you're not preparing for it, well, now we have a big problem. Or what if you've just retired, right? You retired in 2008 <laughs> and the bottom drops out. Yeah, yeah. Are you prepared for it? Because now you're not contributing anymore, right? The difference with your portfolio, Eric, right now is a big downturn today is, is sad, 
because your retirement date could change and you really want to march towards that date, which I totally respect. I was wired exactly the same way. <laughs> not right? But if you're prepared for it, you're not taking advantage as much in the best years of the market because you've build, started to build up this fixed income cushion, but you don't have to move your retirement date. So it's all what's important to you, what your priorities are. So let me ask you this. Let's say we build up these, I buy a bunch of municipal bonds so that it correlates with three to four years of expenses. And I get into uh, you know, retirement, we have this downturn and I have to rely on these things. I am looking at rising interest rates and falling values. Uh, you know, I've, I've lost, you know, the principal asset on the bonds. So these things are worth less and less and less. Like, am I just to be rebalancing, you know, so that my bond allocation is higher and higher as I'm spending these things every year? Like, it's just, it seems like a losing proposition all around. It just doesn't, I, I, I keep coming back to this idea of like, well, maybe I should just keep it in cash. People talk about creating a bond tent. Bond tent is essentially, as you get closer to retirement, you, you know, you build up a huge chunk of your portfolio in bonds, and then you, as you enter the first five to seven years, some people do it up to ten years, you spend the bonds down, and by the time you exit that sort of sequence of returns risk, you've come out the other side with now all stocks in your portfolio, and you just ride it into the sunset. We're not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And I understand that, you know, CD ladders and bond tents are attractive to a lot of people for, for good reasons. It's not something that I'm employing presently. Complex. It's more complex, too. Yeah. I'm not into that. I, I, I will say that, you know, the space we're talking about, you know, where bonds aren't, you know, gain, aren't holding a lot of value and there's inflation happening, right, and they're not inflation protected. What do you do? Often this is the space where alternatives become interesting to people. You know, I'm not someone that holds commodities or precious metals. Right. Plenty of people do. And there are reasons that people can justifiably hold those. Um, that's not a part of my philosophy, operating philosophy. My financial advisors also are not big on them. But there are derivatives and things like that that can be interesting, um, like a market neutral fund, for example. And some of these funds uh, follow a couple of different strategies and that's because they want to mitigate different risks. And so maybe one strategy is trying to hedge against inflation risk, while another one is hedging, hedging against market volatility. And so if the, if the goal is to preserve capital and grow, well, you know, yeah, it'll be a lower growth rate compared to your stock portfolio. But does it not sound better to have at least a little bit of growth? Because you're still preserving your your value, right? That's the the stated goal, but you're also growing a little bit. Those are another thing to consider. Some of them have higher buy-ins than yeah. other funds you might be considering, and they'll have a little higher expense ratio. But that's again why it's another individual decision about net of fees to those type of funds make sense. And there will be some viewers of this segment that will say actively managed funds are never acceptable. I think that's a rather strong position to hold. Um, I do think the majority, the bulk of your portfolio should be low expense ratio, largely indexed funds. So is mine. But there is a case to be made for considering actively managed funds, maybe for some of these more niche areas. It just sounds and like more. That's just one example. It's like more research and it also sounds like more risk. And like, 
I'm happy to take risk and stuff that I understand, but some of these things and, and I am considering them Jay, cause, cause you've pointed them out to me. Uh, but yeah. higher expense ratio, more risk. Is it serving the, the purpose that I want to serve? And I guess maybe that brings me back to the larger question here is, is it just about having, uh, a place to run to when stocks are down and you need something to sell? Uh, that's not going to be quite as volatile or is it about finding negative correlation? Because I always read this, this idea that, you know, bonds were supposed to be negatively correlated with stocks. And of course, when stocks go, you know, way in the tank, bonds will be less in the tank, but they're, they're more correlated than they have been historically, uh, right over the past 10, 15 years. Yeah. And I, I think this is just an example where overall diversity is your friend. So, yeah. you know, REITs uh, are, are they don't track in lockstep with stocks, but they have a correlation to stocks, many of these real estate funds. And that's something you have to consider. Um, and not all real estate funds are created equally. Some are isolated to certain segments of the real estate market. And those might be less correlated, for example, with overall economic performance, for example, or overall market performance. So I don't mean to say that there's another rationale to do more research. I'm just trying to say that there are reasons that these different funds and different alternative strategies exist. No, I get it. And there, it's, uh, the whole thing is a play on risk mitigation via diversity. Yeah. So there's not, there's not a single answer here. I, I mean, at the end of the day, what are we trying to solve for? We're all trying to solve for the same thing, and that is making sure that our portfolio will, if not outlast us, our lifetimes will at least leave us with zero dollars. We will make it to the end of the game <laughs> and we'll achieve our goals. Uh -huh. And for some people in the community, that is to spend every dollar. For other people in the community, that is to leave a legacy for yeah. charitable giving to family, et cetera. The point is your asset allocation needs to solve for that equation with whatever the likelihood that you're comfortable with. You've used a number of different tools to analyze different portfolios. I've used a bunch. You know, the most recent one this afternoon was Portfolio Visualizer. Um, what what do we use to test out our ideas? Yeah. So one common strategy is back testing, and I'll put the caveat right out front. When you back test, you're sort of you can only look backwards. You can't say that the future will look anything like the past. But what you can do is say, if I had a portfolio that looked like mine does today and a completely different one 20 years ago, how would they have performed differently? And so it can give you some really good directional advice when you're considering different approaches. Yeah. And you can look at different blends of international versus domestic or bonds and cash. the impact of various amounts of bond funds, cash, whatever. And so Portfolio Visualizer, which we'll link in the show notes, is one of those common tools. And and that I did find very useful to look at the impact of different blends. Have It sounds like you've done some of that too. I have. And oh, Any the, surprises? The trouble with all of these that I find is like, okay, do I trust this little, these little set of inputs and radio buttons? Like it's just a black box. I don't like how much, how much stock do I put in this thing? Oh, okay. It was linked from Bogleheads. Okay. That has, you know, seems like a lot of people are using it there, you know, or I've downloaded some spreadsheets on comparing municipal bonds and BND and where I put those and you know how they're taxed in my state. Okay. Can I trust that? Like, has it been vetted? That's the problem with all of these things, Jay. And I, if, as I look at portfolio, if they're not open source. Okay. Yeah. But as I look right. at portfolio, fire sim, for example, is open source, right? If I look at Portfolio Visualizer, for example, like 
it starts with 1972 or whatever. Um, so it's just like a, what it's going back 50 years or something. And I mean, I don't know, is that where I should start? (laughs) Just, it's all of these things. I, I feel like I don't have quite enough information to rely on the results that I get, but if you're using them as a comparative analysis tool, for example, a hundred percent stock portfolio versus my 70, 30 stock portfolio that I'm transitioning to, I get to see what that looks like. And Guess what? Yes. I prefer the one that's 100% stock. <laughs> well, of course you do, until you don't. Right. There was some right. pretty big negative. Yeah, it's like 2008. It's like, whoa, that's pretty hard to look at right there. But I mean, how do you use yeah. it? Do you use it at all? Um, um, I have used it to do retrospective analyses, for example, of, well, my poor, my international, you know, for example, like we talked about earlier, is more complex it has several different funds and it doesn't just have one fund and so i looked at well how does that look over 20 years was the juice worth the squeeze right Right. are my three funds better than this one fund alone in that example yes they were uh on net um and so okay that's a good thing um i also looked at well what if i collapsed my whole portfolio versus a three fund portfolio and that becomes harder to back test and this is something worth pointing out because many funds that we're using today didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah. And so now you're starting to play with, well, do I pick something that's close enough? To pick an analog. Is it really close enough? (laughs) Right. So you start to end up with narrower and narrower windows of time. And by the way, if you start looking at just the last 10 to 12 years and you're comparing 100% stock versus anything, forget it. You're going to come to perhaps the wrong conclusion. So you end up with a recency bias, which is something that is honestly pretty common overall right now because anyone who's only been investing the last 12 years well they're going to have a different opinion i think on some of the stuff we're talking about potentially influenced by just recent performance so yeah i do use them it's been mostly as a uh just kind of asking questions about my portfolio to date and were those decisions did they turn out to be the right ones or the best ones or what you know how did my uh, here's a very specific one eric how did my portfolio perform in downturns versus what it would have been if it was all stock, for example. I did look at some of those questions and I, I thought that was pretty interesting to see it, uh, as you would expect, not being nearly as negatively influenced by some of those downturns. Yeah. Than, um, so th- these tools, you can actually take the funds you're using and input them, right? Like, yes, you can. No, I, I put in literally every fund I hold right. and compared it to you okay. know, the three most common lazy portfolios, for example. Yeah. Okay. So what other tools have you used for that in the past? I mean, I like Seafire Sim quite a lot. Um, I, I'm not sure you can put the exact funds into Seafire Sim. It's pretty generic. No. For overall portfolio, like likelihood of success, Seafire Sim, um, something I've used to look at asset allocation specifically um, is the X-Ray tool in Morningstar. Now, I am not somebody that pays for a premium membership at Morningstar, but if you uh, want to do an analysis one level deeper than personal capital, which does a really good one for free. If you want to go another level deep, you could always sign up for a trial account at Morningstar and try that and just, you know, don't continue it, cancel it in two weeks. I found that really good to look at what sectors, uh, investment, what sort of, you know, the different axes of sort of bond qualities, um, looking for overlap, Right. So some people who follow the show might hold single stocks like I hold a very small amount, less than two percent of my portfolio in single stocks. And you might wonder, well, I hold Tesla and you know Microsoft, for example, in single stocks. But what's their percentage in my 
you know, US, uh, you know, S&P 500 index fund, well, you might find out that, you know, you have overlap in your portfolio and they, they have tools like that. So those, those are ones that I found pretty interesting to just do some, you know, analysis of my asset allocation. There's also portfoliocharts.com. That's a pretty, Oh, what's that one? Uh, it's a collection of 18 pretty well-known portfolios. There's the golden butterfly. There's the 712, Merriman, Larry, and has this feature where you can kind of build your own portfolio where you can select all the funds, you know, based on asset class. And then it provides kind of the overall expense ratio for your exact portfolio using what you selected. And I think of any of the sites that I've frequented, it has the most number of charts. So a little bit overwhelming, but there's a lot of information to extract from. Uh, I've got another one. This is a little more in the weeds, but I know that, you know, from some of the comments we get, some of our, you know, viewers really are in the technical depth. Uh, back to Karsten from early retirement now, Big yeah. Earn. He has a spreadsheet-based tool that he makes freely available. It's a, a Google Doc that it has a lot of detail in it, but it nicely ties together asset allocation with withdrawal rate. And so it's primarily aimed at withdrawal rate, but it lets you specify, you know, different, you know, different percent allocations and what you would put as the uh, performance you'd like to model for each of those categories and then lets you look at the withdrawal rate scenarios. And so it's kind of marrying a couple of different topics together, but it's very much driven by your overall asset allocation and the performance of each of those categories of assets. So I think some people might find that pretty valuable, too. Yeah, that's pretty in the weeds. I mean, yeah, definitely. It's, it is. I downloaded it and I was like, okay, it's probably not for me. <laughs> but I went to, uh, I like the M, I mean, we've t I've mentioned it a few times in this, the M1, M1. finance pies, um, and you can track any number of sort of personal finance gurus. Uh, so whoever you're putting the most stock in, like there's Paul Merriman's one is like, it's a crazy little division of little pie chunks everywhere, but uh it's all stock. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting to look at how, um, how people sort of structure those portfolios, whether that's their own personal portfolio or it's one they kind of modeled for M1 finance. I don't really know. So all of this is kind of, uh, you know, use at your own risk kind of situation. So rebalancing is obviously important to the overall performance of your portfolio over the long term, And it's simply, uh, if you have any part of your portfolio, let's say in my example, I'm headed toward a 70, 30, uh, portfolio. I'm clearly not there right now. So I'm rebalancing to get there. Do you have any set of rules that your financial advisors use that say, okay, if the stock portion of the portfolio grows to be 78%, we have to rebalance or do they do it quarterly or annually? How's that? What's that process look like? So I think generally speaking, the answer won't differ from what I think many people do. You know, whether you have a, a pol an investment policy statement or not, that IPS, um, you should have targets that are laid out for what you would like to hold at this point in time in terms of your asset allocation, right? I want X percent U.S. large cap. I want X percent international bonds, et cetera. And so that should be your guiding document. Now, the frequency that, that people do it, I mean, here, it's I looked at quarterly, um, and it's an opportunity, whether through buying when you're still investing, to make sure that you can kind of get where you want. Uh, you can also sell uh, and reallocate that way. 
you could also look at your dividend reinvestment as a tool for um, altering your allocation. But effectively, you're just trying on a regular basis to keep it in line with what your targets are. And so, yeah, for me, that's that's ranged between quarterly to annually over time. Okay. How about you? Well, I've got 100% stock, so it's... Uh, hey, it makes it easy, right? <laughs> it's pretty easy to rebalance that. I mean, the problem is... I guess the only nuance... Oh, I'm sorry, Eric. I was going to say, is tax loss harvesting. Is that something that you've taken advantage of or had, have needed to to date or no, because you're effectively in one fund? So here, I missed my giant opportunity in 2020 to tax loss harvest and because I didn't know about it. And that is... I just feel like such a fool because I would have had... <laughs> I would have had losses for the next 10 years probably stacked up, right? But I didn't do it. Um, I will do it. And I have, I have my portfolios positioned in a way to do that. You know, I have funds that are similar, but, you know, they're tracking different indices. So I'm set up to do it. I feel prepared to do it. I know that's one of the things that you said that's great. You, you felt a little hesitant about. Um, but no, I'm totally uh, I'm ready to do that. But in terms of rebalancing it, if you have an a strangely weighted portfolio, let's say you had let it, your stocks grow to, you know, huge proportions in a taxable account, it's very difficult to rebalance. So you really, I'm not saying you have to do it quarterly, but you better be doing it at least annually. Uh, because what I'm finding now yeah. is to try and achieve the asset allocation that I'm after in a taxable account, it's not easy. <laughs> it's, it's not just flick, flicking a switch because you have taxable events every time you're selling things. It's, it's different if you're trying to rebalance in your, you know, tax deferred accounts and you have a lot more flexibility there probably, but man, it's, it's something you need to pay attention to. It, it, it also, totally. I mean, it's going to change the I, performance of your portfolio in the long term as well. Right. I mean, if you're rebalancing every yeah. week, you're probably going to shave some growth off of that portfolio. Right. Right. Well, I, I think this is, yeah, another example of uh, you, you touch it too often. You're going to you're going to do things <laughs> that are up. not desirable. Has your portfolio in the seven years you've been working with your um, financial advisors, has it changed? Has the asset allocation changed over time or has it remained the same? No, I think largely uh, the IPS, the IPS is absolutely what it's been all along. And, you know, barring little deviations here and there due to market performance and otherwise, and we've corrected for those, it has stayed the same. Okay. So you've got same goals. Your portfolio is meeting those goals and no reason to change. So I imagine we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but why stick with them if nothing's changed? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, it is worthy of a longer discussion. Uh, and at some point, I very well may take that decision. In fact, yeah. recently, I thought I was ready to, but I'm not yet. And I think that's okay for now. But you know, as someone who does the math constantly of what X, Y, and Z cost me over time, um, it's something I think about. I, I do believe there's something worth pointing out. And this is something I try to remind myself of often. And I, you were hinting at it earlier without actually saying it, right? So if you suddenly stop working with financial advisors, what's the likelihood that you would make only correct decisions long term that would you know, have the same result you would have had before eh, it, versus make some tragic errors? So I don't think I would do anything that would completely upset the boat. I'm not that emotional, nor uh, I think nonsensical, but to assume I could match performance 100%, probably a foolish thing to consider. Would I do well enough? I think that's true, but 
I guess, which problem are you trying to solve for? And that answer is going to be individual. For me personally, at the present, I love the support I get and the confidence that I gain from throwing my ideas out there, getting rational, quantitative answers back, <laughs> um, knowing that no one is trying to sell me anything, but they're just trying to make sure that we achieve the goals that we have. And here's what you know, I was going to like. Here's what I was going to liken it to, Jay. Uh, a lot of people come to architects uh, thinking that we do a certain thing, and that is design a set of floor plans and elevations, come up with materials, and you know we bundle it all up into a set of drawings and hand it over to the contractor, and then we walk away. And that's right. the equivalent of the IPS and the plan that they created for you, your investment advisors. But the bulk of my job, well, maybe not the bulk, but a good portion of my fee more than 40% is, you know, assigned to construction. So the architect doesn't just step away when we hand the plans to the contractor, we actually stay through what is the equivalent of your drawdown phase. And it's really important that we're involved in the construction process because there's no way we can possibly draw every detail in, in a building. There's no way we can account for certain unforeseen circumstances that arise in construction. Certain things need to be changed and we're there to see the vision through the execution of the project. And I really sell that as a package service to my own clients uh, because there's a lot of value there. And um, I actually don't work with any clients who I, I'm not able to deliver that, that service to. Um, so while there are, is a market for architects just selling their plans and handing them over, it's not the market that I serve. And I think it's, it's not um, where you're at personally. And I think you're going to have an overall better product in the end, just like I believe, you know, having an architect involved in the whole construction process yeah. produces something overall that's better for the client and a better home and all these other intangibles that, you know, and I see you struggle with the, the costs associated yeah. with it in a lot of ways, but to me, it's a minor expense for what it buys you. And so I know right. in the fire community, there's a lot of kind of, you know, thumbing of noses at financial advisors. Oh but yeah. And it, worse. Yeah. But and in part here, I hope that this has helped to kind of share out the value that they've brought and, and help people understand the nuance and complexity of designing a portfolio with an asset allocation that works for someone's nuanced situation, because I don't have one. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's a worry for me, you know. I um, My financial advisor shared, me an, uh, shared an anecdote with me that I suspect will work really well with you, although I have to admit, I'm going to tell them your analogy with the architect. I think that's brilliant. <laughs> um, they said this, they said they had, if with some frequency, they have customers who ask them. So when you go into my portfolio, like how long does it take you to figure out, you know, you know, asset allocation questions like rebalancing sales, you know, what yeah. have you. He's like, well, it usually takes me about uh, 20 years and 15 minutes. So that's exactly kind of how I think about it's the it. Picasso sketch yeah. thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a cute answer, but it's got merit to it. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's I, cool. I actually really like your, your architect example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's tough. I feel like I, this is not the, not the, uh, the conversation to, un, no, to I know. unpack that whole topic, but it's, it is complex. And I think as you approach, uh, you know, retirement and you cross over and you suddenly start to have and are willing to take more time to personally consider your portfolio and the decisions you want to make and, in fact, are very interested in it and excited by it. Yeah. The scales do start to tip towards like, well, 
I could conceivably take this on. I think I know enough <laughs> to not do damage, <laughs> right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sink the boat. That's the hope. But, um, the drawdown yeah, phase is scary. I mean, it's got a, it's got a set of scary ramifications that I am only now just appreciating. So I, I, again, I am appreciative for the open dialogue here around how to how to make it work. Cause I don't have it figured yeah. out and the simple portfolio, like it only gets you so far, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. And, and, you know, neither of us have and are sitting here judging the individual merit that, you know, we each choose on a daily basis. I want a super lazy, simple portfolio versus I'm willing to have something more complicated, but personally, at least I like the strategy I have. I'm comfortable with it, and it works for me. Um, I think you got to do what makes the most sense for you, your family, and your specific circumstances, plus how you're wired, right? I think that's... All stocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, believe me. You changed I, my when mind. When I ran the math of what my portfolio... If I just took my portfolio where it was seven years ago... Jammed it in. <laughs> I jammed it in 100% VTSAX for seven years. Yeah, I'm pretty happy with that number. It's a nice um, number, yeah. <laughs> now to be clear i didn't have the amount of fixed income i have now seven years ago right just like you there was a ramp towards my yeah. retirement date um so <laughs> my ramp's know, like this <laughs> i have been very heavy equity the entire time and only more recently started to increase that position especially as i nailed down well this is when i would like to retire early this is when i believe my assets are going to support it oh okay we better start planning for that so as I mean, how much, given the amount of time that we've dedicated to talking about asset allocation, it seems like, you know, when we have guests on and we're talking with other people, it's something I'm always curious about. When I listen to other podcasts, I'm like, ooh, I want to, I want to know what do they got? You know, so I'm glad you sh were willing to share percentages and, um, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see how it changes over time if it does at all. For sure. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Fi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com.